And I want to invite us again to turn in God's word to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Continuing our study of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 4. Beginning in verse, we're going to look primarily at verse 8, but I'm going to begin the reading in verse 6. Set the context again for us. Remember, Paul is writing to a church that, is, uh, that he started, a church that has uh, been going for a number of years now. Paul's been gone. A number of other leaders have come in. And now he's received word that there is uh, much boasting in the church, uh, a lot of pride going on over uh, who, are, who are the better leaders, some division happening in the church. And as we'll see, it was, it was filtering out into how they were living their lives in the community. And Paul is writing them. Uh, to, to call them back to the, to the central things, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to recognize the foolishness of the gospel and to lean on um, God's wisdom and power as it is in Christ and not in the things of, these world, in, of this world. And so he picks up in verse, chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I have applied all these things, these things that he has been writing uh, so far, to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ As I teach them everywhere, in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit Of gentleness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this, the word of the Lord, stands forever. Let's pray together.
Father, come now by your spirit and teach us. And not just teach us, Lord, transform us. Take these words, which are your words given to us by your spirit through your servants. And Lord, make them powerful. Spirit, cause them to rest upon our hearts in a way that divides bone and marrow, that opens up our lives to your truth and opens up our eyes to see your glory and your grace in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you do that for us this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I was young, probably in high school or maybe early years in college, a friend of mine's parents had a sign on their refrigerator door. It was a big sign in bold, and it said, Attention teenagers, leave home now while you still know everything. And as much as I hate to admit it, there were times in my own youth when I acted as if that were very true. I pretty much thought I knew everything, and frankly, I relegated much of my mom and dad's wisdom to the category of parenting cliches that they were just uh, obligated for any parent to give to their children. In reality, I thought I knew better. And then an amazing thing happened. I grew older. And then I became a dad. And I began to realize that not only did did my parents actually know a lot more than I gave them credit for, but most of their advice was actually uh, profound truths that I found myself now sharing with my own children. For instance, I learned that it really is better to read and follow instructions before you start something. Or that taking shortcuts often costs you more time in the end. That delayed gratification actually leads to more satisfaction. That discipline really is a sign of love. And yes, I even learned as a dad that this punishment is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Well, not really. But we know the sentiment, right? And it's true. There, there, were, there were truths in there. And it wasn't until I became a father that I realized the hard, sometimes seemingly harsh advice that a godly father often has for his children flows not just from wanting them to see them mature or succeed or things of that sort, but it really flows out of a deep love for them and a concern that, that they would know that they would live life according to the reality and the wisdom of God's truth and grace. And the Apostle Paul has had some stern, hard, rebuking words to say to the, to the believers in the city of Corinth, whose pride and arrogance had led them to, to act like spiritually immature children who thought they knew all they needed to know and that they had all they needed to have, such that they were, again, boasting one over against the other. And Paul has, up to this point, been pointing out that such boasting is really foolishness. It is self-deceptive, and it's harmful, not only to themselves, but, but to the body of Christ, the church. And it's a hindrance to their witness for Christ in the gospel. And in winding up this this kind of first section of the letter here at the end of chapter 4, Paul tells them that his advice, his appeals, his admonishment to them have come 
not for the purpose of, of berating or belittling them, of, of shaming them into some kind of, of change of behavior, but it's come out of a deep love, a deep concern for them as a father loves his children. He says in verse 15, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, and I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That word guide refers to a, a guardian or a tutor. It was often a, a slave in a, in a Roman household who was charged with watching over and caring for the children. And they may have delegated responsibility by the father for the children, but, but they were, would not exercise it in the same way and the same love and care and motivation that a father does. And Paul says, you have lots of people who will teach and watch over you, but not many with the same love and, and attention and care and deep concern for your welfare, for your spiritual maturity and growth and grace as I have. Paul had brought the gospel to Corinth. And he had seen many of them come to, to new life in Christ, had seen great transformation and, and watched them as they began to grow and to blossom in the faith. He had nursed them along in their spiritual infancy and had care, carefully turned them over to, to others who could, who could lead and, and guide them in the truth. And now as, as they have begun to stray away from that truth of God's word and, and from the grace of the gospel, he writes back to them and he says, you're my kids. I love you like a dad. And therefore, I'm not just going to tell you what you want to hear, but I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. I have some hard things to say, but that's because I'm for you. I am concerned about you. I love you. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that. And, and his rebuke for their sin flows not out of a desire to, to elevate himself or to defend his ways or to put them to shame, but it comes out of a heart of fatherly love. And so Paul comes again here in this last section and he, he once again gives them uh, an admonishment, a warning. And he puts before them, I think in this section, three kind of lessons to his spiritual children that I want us to hear as well. And I want us to hear them with, with two sets of ears. I want us to hear them first with the ears of spiritual children <laughs> who need to be reminded of the, of the wisdom given from our Heavenly Father, who need to be reminded of what it is to walk in the ways of Jesus that, that as Paul said, keeps us from being puffed up in pride and, and looking to the ways of the world for significance and for guidance. But I also want us to hear them with the ears of spiritual fathers and mothers and mentors. And whether it is with our own children in our home or with those whom God has given us opportunity to, to lead or to minister to in the body or even to, to serve and, and, and witness to outside in the world. We need to love and lead by example so as to point those under our care to the wisdom and power of God found in Jesus. So I want to look at these three pieces of fatherly wisdom that Paul gives to Corinthians in these verses in, in, through those lenses. And the first one is, your best life isn't now. Your best life isn't now. Paul is reminding them that their boasting is foolish in light of the fact that everything they know, everything they have, everything they are is owing to the grace of God. It's been given to them. 
by God. Yes, they may have worldly knowledge and wisdom, but who gave them the mind to, to understand and to, and to think? Yes, they may have possessions and wealth, but who gave them the, the bodies and the hands and the, and the skills to work and to, and to earn those things? All of it comes from God, Paul reminds them. And then with a bit of sarcasm, he points to the attitude they have about that. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, he says. The emphasis Paul puts here is on the already. <laughs> already. The essence of what he is saying is, you think you have arrived. You think you're living your best life now. The believers in Corinth were living as if this world were all there is. They were acting like they had already arrived in God's kingdom and there was nothing more to, to come. They had become satisfied and settled in this life. They were losing sight of the fact that, that God's kingdom is not of this world. And perhaps we might look and think that they have some justification. After all, hadn't Paul already given thanks back in chapter 1? That in Christ they had been enriched in every way. That they, had, they were not lacking in any gift as they wait the Lord's return. Hadn't he just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 3 said to them, All things are yours. Whether the world or, or heaven, the present or the future. And indeed, those things are true. But the reality is that while they were now in Christ and endowed with every spiritual blessing and positionally fully uh, in heirs of all that Christ had come to give, they were losing sight of the fact or they were trying to appropriate those things into this world and into this life. They were taking the promises of the gospel and all its blessings and benefits and they were uncritically adapting and, and, and appropriating them into, thinking, into the thinking and the values of the society in which they lived. Life in Christ had certainly had great impact on their life in Corinth. But the realities of life in Corinth were also still having a great impact on their life in Christ. They were taking the promised glory of heaven to come and they were seeking to, to bring it to earth in the here and now. And this was probably uh, due to the, the various teachings and philosophies of the, of the Greek philosophers that were prominent in that time. And they were, they were probably taking some of that and the promises of the gospel and they were, they were uh, uh, mixing them together in a way that was causing them to stray from the foundation of the cross. They were taking the truth of their position in Christ and embracing a kind of, of triumphalist approach to life that wants all glory and no cross. And the result was they were pursuing their best life now. And it was blinding them to the reality that they were actually living counter to God's best life for them as his children. And Paul sarcastically points this out saying, oh, that you did reign. <laughs> I wish this were true because then I could come along with you and reign with you. 
If that were truly the case, he says, I'd be right there with you as comfortable kings sitting on the thrones of our little earthly kingdoms together. But, he says, that is not how it is in the kingdom of God. If you're satisfied and smug, if you're proud of your spirituality, if you're confident in your success, if you're comfortable in your status, then unfortunately, you may be living your best life now because you're in danger of missing the better life that God has to come. Paul, in an ironic fashion, is pointing out the truth that God's kingdom is is eternal. In Christ, we are no longer citizens of this world. We have an eternal home that awaits, an inheritance in heaven, and we are not to become settled. We are not to become smug in this world or its ways. We are not even just to sit back and wait till that comes, but we are called to live as aliens and strangers in this world with a mission. And so this admonition that Paul gives causes us to think, how are we uncritically connecting the gospel with the desires and aspirations of the culture around us? Where are we as individuals or even as a church, whether here at Ambassador or the church uh, larger, pursuing or portraying our best life now? Are we in danger of hitching the gospel and the God's blessings to a particular sense of, of success or comfort or control in our lives now? When someone asks, how are you doing, do you feel like you need to respond with, oh, everything's great, life is good. I have a few struggles, but overall I'm blessed. That's a sign that we, we, we kind of have this sense of, of we've got to have, everything's got to be right here. Or if we don't feel like that, then somehow we're not being blessed by God. Rather, we need to be willing to recognize and embrace that our best life is not now. That while we may strive for and feel like we have all we want or or have all we desire, that's not going to fulfill Jesus, who truly had all knowledge, who truly had all power, all riches, all glory, he did not come down and set up his earthly kingdom. He didn't come down and live his best life and give us our best life here. Rather, he emptied himself. He poured out his life here in order that we might know our best life in eternity with him. And Paul says he's still doing that. (laughs) He's still doing that through his ministers, through his church, through the witness to him in this world. And Paul takes to the next uh, lesson that he has. Not only is our best life not now, lesson number two is no pain, no gain. Paul contrasts the triumphalist attitude of the Corinthians with the quite opposite experience of his own life as an apostle. He says, you think you're kings? But what we go through is anything but the royal treatment. 
He uses a picture here of the conquering Roman general parading victoriously into the city with the spoils of war. And this, this long procession would come into the city and, and the, the general and all the, all the uh, important people would be up front and receiving all the accolades and behind them would come the troops who had won the battles. And then there would be a group who would be carrying the spoils of war and showing all the things that they had, they had conquered. And then behind them might come the the. Uh, the opposing generals and troops and, and they would be dejected, maybe bound by ropes or chains. And then last of all, at the end of the line were those who were not going to prison, who were not going to be sold into slavery, but they were going to be marched right into the arena to face the lions, the gladiators, those who were condemned to die. And Paul applies that to his apostleship and to the apostleship of, of, uh, of the others of his fellow apostles. Far from being able to say we are kings, he says, we are like men condemned to die, looked down upon, spectacles being paraded for the world and others to see. Again, he uses irony to hammer home the point. He says, we are fools for Christ while you are so wise. We are weak while you are so strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And then he says, if you want a real assessment of what the world thinks of Jesus and his message, look at us. He says, even to right now, we're hungry. We get our clothes at goodwill. We don't have a home to go to. We are experiencing all kinds of, of trials. We labor hard day in and day out with our hands just to make ends meet. When people revile us, we bless them. When people persecute us, we continue to press on. When they slander us, we continue to entreat them to Christ. He says, you want the final assessment? We have become and are still the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. How's that for a marketing slogan for the church? Ambassador Presbyterian Church, the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things, come join us this Sunday. We laugh at it, but it highlights the tension that there is. Because I don't think many people would, would look at Warren Harvey and say he's the scum of the earth. I don't think many people would look at Ambassador Presbyterian Church or, or most of the church in the modern world and say they look like the scum of the earth, the refuge. And Paul's point is not that we should go out and seek to, to intentionally become those things but his point is that those who are called to follow a suffering Savior and to spread the gospel to a suffering world, we will have to embrace the value of suffering and sacrifice, and we will be considered by the world as foolish and treated that way. Again, the foolishness of the cross is that God works through these things to bring about his glory and to point people to Christ's grace Paul says over in Romans 8 we are fellow heirs with Christ we have all things if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory no pain 
no gain, is a true maximum in, maxim in the kingdom of God. As spiritual children, we need to remember that Jesus called us to take up our cross daily. He said that in, in this life, there will be trials. You will be hated. There will be suffering for those who belong to him. But those sufferings would actually be the means by which God is doing his sanctifying work in us and his saving work in the world through us. And they would ultimately lead to joy and hope of eternal life where all suffering would be removed. In the meantime, God said, uh, Paul says, God is the one. Notice that. God is the one who is leading them in procession. Which to the world is a spectacle of foolishness and weakness. But to those being saved, the gospel is the power of God. The question is, will we embrace and enter the pain? Will we count everything as loss, including ourselves, to lead others and ourselves to, gain, to the gain found in knowing Christ? If so, then we have to take to heart Paul's third word of wisdom here, and that is that actions speak louder than words. Or we might say, do as I say and as I do. <laughs> Again, Paul says these harsh things as a father to his beloved children, not to, not to shame us, but to warn us. And in doing so, he says, therefore, I urge you, I urge you to be imitators of me. Paul is pleading with them. Don't just hear what I have to say, but walk in the way that I walk. He's certainly not saying imitate me and your life will be trial free. He's already made that clear. He's not saying imitate me because I have all the answers and I never do anything wrong. That's not true. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He's not saying imitate me because I'm great or greater than others. What Paul is saying is as your father in the faith, imitate me as a one who not only spoke Christ to you in the gospel, but who also models Christ for you in all of my ways. Indeed, Paul says, that's why I sent another of my spiritual children, Timothy, who's been faithful, my beloved son in the faith. Why did Paul send him there when he couldn't go himself? So that he might remind them of Paul's ways, not just his teaching, but his ways, which he puts forth in all the churches that he goes to. Paul says, my ways are true to my words. My walk matches my talk. And my talk and my walk are based on the words and the ways of our Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. And so he says again over in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Parents, one of the most serious and sobering realities of parenting is that our children will imitate us. It's not if they will, it's that they will. They may hear what we say, but often our actions will speak louder than our words. I remember this when I was teaching each of my boys to drive. I'd get in the car with them and I'd say, okay, Slow down, don't go over the speed limit. Make sure you have your blinker on, you know, teaching them all the things. Meanwhile, I'm riding down the road 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, never turning my blinker on. 
And I was convicted of that. They're not going to just learn from what I say, but they're going to learn from how we do what we do. If they see us living in ways that don't line up with the things we teach, what do you think is going to have more of a powerful impact? Our actions. If our walk doesn't match our talk, then our witness and our integrity will suffer. And the same is true for us spiritually. This speaks pointedly, pointedly, particular to us who are pastors and leaders in the church. If our lives don't line up with the message and the ministry of Christ, then we cannot say with integrity and sincerity to those we lead, follow us, follow me as I follow Christ. We know all too well the devastating impact on a church when a well-known or well-respected leader is found to be living in a way counter to what they are heralding from the pulpit. And again, that's not to say that leaders don't sin or, or have to be perfect examples. We never will be. But part of that example is also to acknowledge our weaknesses, to be quick to confess and repent of sin, to be diligent to pursue loving and leading others in the example of Jesus. And as spiritual fathers and, and, and mothers and mentors, as I mentioned before, witnesses to others, whether it's to our children or at work or in school or at home or in our community, can we honestly say to someone, imitate me? Imitate me. Listen, we will all imitate somebody. We will. Athletes will imitate their favorite players. Students will imitate their favorite teachers. We all look to role models in various areas of our lives. And as I said to the kids, some are, are good and worthy, worthy of following and, and others not so much. But they're people we want to listen to their advice, but we also want to follow and pattern our lives on their ways. And usually we do so to make or improve, make, make or improve ourselves or our lives in some way. But despite what many people may say, Jesus is not a popular role model by the world's standards. His message, his ministry, his methods are all counter to what we would normally uphold as how we would do things. Imitating him does mean humbling ourselves under his word and living in the way he calls us to live. It means uh, entering into pain and suffering at numerous levels, trusting God to work in that and through that for his glory and for our good. It means being, being willing to, to sacrifice our time and our talents and our treasures to love and serve others. That's not always real popular. But his ways lead to life and to glory and to transformation such that our lives are changed more and more to reflect him. And again, God uses that to bring others to know and to follow Christ. And Paul ends by pointing out that some of the Corinthians, and particularly those who were leading them now, were puffed up because they didn't think Paul would come back to see them. They kind of had this attitude that, well, Paul's moved on and he's not here now, so we're not going to worry too much about what he said or what he did. You're going to follow our ways now. And Paul says, Lord willing, I will be back and I'll be looking. <laughs> Paul's almost coming back saying, I, I'm coming to, to render judgment myself and I'll be looking to see 
if their walk matches their talk. I'll be looking to see if what they are saying and how they are living is really making a difference in people's lives. Are people being saved? Are the poor being helped? Are the sick being ministered to? Are the needs uh, 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 of, the, of the body of Christ being met? Are people living in a way that, that reflects the truths of God and not the ways of the culture? And of course, we'll see as we go through the, the letter that that was not happening. The kingdom of God, he says, is not a matter of talk, but of power. Lots of Christians and churches talk the talk, but the question is, is the power of God present in our lives and through our lives into our community and around? Do we not just hear and mimic what Jesus said, but do we do it? Paul says, where the gospel is preached, God's word is taught, and where the values of Jesus are lived out in community, there will be life-giving, life-transforming, spiritual power happening. We need to be careful of spiritual spin, a kind of teaching and approach to God that is, that is full of talk and lots of empty promises, but is empty of power. Actions speak louder than words, and where the Spirit of God is, the community of Christ will reflect the power of His Spirit at work. Friends, I love this church. I love this church. Some of you are spiritual children, literally, whom I have seen believe and grow in the gospel for many years. Others I've gotten to know and to hear your stories and see God at work in your lives in various ways. I've watched as God has, has blessed us in many ways as a body, how he's worked in power, his power, not only in us, but through us. But we can't say we have arrived. We can't say already. We have all that we want. We're good. We can't sit back and rest on what God has done. But we have to be active in what God is doing and wants to continue doing in and through us. We are not called to be a small enclave of heaven on earth. But we're called to be a growing spectacle of God's wisdom and his power, which the world will look at and say, that is foolish. And people will, will come and say, what are you thinking? What are you doing? But others will come and say, how do I get in on that? I want what you have. And God will use that. Our best life will not be now. And we'll have to embrace and engage in pain and suffering together. But we will be examples, not just of the words, but the ways of Jesus to the world. And through us, his power will go forth. And it begins first, looking at our own hearts. Are you living or seeking to live your best life now? <laughs> or are you seeking to live for Jesus and enter in whatever he calls you to. To be considered scum of the earth. In order that you and others might know the king of, king of kings. 
Why, what gave Paul such a father's heart for the people at Corinth? They weren't being very good kids. They were acting more like rebellious children. And Paul could easily have said, forget you. He could have written them off. But he didn't. Why? Because Paul himself had come to know the love of God the Father and the power of his son Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection from the grave. Paul had come to see the the power and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He had witnessed that power at work through him in the midst of all the pain and trials and suffering and even embracing that as the way in which God was going to work through his weakness. He had learned that his best life is not in this world but another. And he had received the gift of God's grace and salvation in Christ. And in him he had come to know that there is purpose in the pain and the hardship and the trials. He had, he had come to count everything as loss to know for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And in doing so, he and many others had gained everything. Paul's life was profoundly changed. He was loved by Christ when he was most unlovable, and as a result, he now could turn and love others. And brothers and sisters, that's true of us as well. If you know the love of God in Christ for you, that he would lay down his life when you were rebelling against him and sinning against him, when you didn't have anything to do with him, yet he poured out his grace upon you and has saved you and redeemed you. And now he calls you to enter into life with him. And it's not life that is great here and now although it has its great elements. But not like the world says. It's a life that says we will enter into following Jesus in serving and loving and caring for one another and living according to the wisdom and the ways of God in his word. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's anything my children could do to make me stop loving them. I'd have to think pretty hard, maybe something, but I don't think so. Nothing they could do to make me stop loving them. And I don't think there will ever be a time when I'm not trying to give them wise counsel and advice as a loving father. And that same thing is true 10,000 times more for God. There's nothing we can do to make him stop loving us in Jesus Christ. He will never stop seeking to give us the wise counsel and the admonishment that we need as his children. But in love, Jesus calls us, not to make, calls us to make him known, not by boasting and resting in our own laurels, not by pitying ourselves and comparing ourselves to others in the world and thinking that we're better or worse than they are, but to boast and rest in him. And then as his body, as the church, not just individuals, but as the body of Christ, to literally embody him in the gospel and his power As we go out and we live like him and we proclaim the kingdom of God, not just with our lips, but with our lives. That's where our best life is. Let's pray together.
Lord, thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. That you have called us to yourself and to your son, Jesus Christ, not because of anything we are, not because of anything we have, not because of anything we have done, but simply because you and your sovereign grace have poured out your love to us in Christ Jesus. And Father, thank you that you are a loving Father who disciplines his children in love. Lord, we ask that you would discipline us in the way we need, that we might show forth your glory, that we might live according to your grace and your truth and the commands of your Son, Jesus, that we might model his life of, of sacrifice and of service and of compassion and grace to one another and to the world. And Lord, that we might even embrace the reputation that others might try to put upon us as foolish or crazy or scum, refuse of the world. And that, Father, we would do that knowing that you would shine through that and that your glory might be seen more clearly. Lord, would you do this not for our purposes, but for your glory and for your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.